Hey everyone, this is the Uncivilized Podcast. It's episode 17. I'm Art, and today we have with us uh, Manuel, who's been a longtime friend and supporter of the channel. Today we wanted to talk about you know, long-term collapse and some of the options that this method or this future might bring us. So Emmanuel, do you want to kind of talk about you know, our previous conversations that led to this episode? Yeah, basically the idea that I became interested by was the idea of uneven development which is just, if you look at how civilization and technology progresses anywhere, you can see that it's not, uh, it doesn't spread out evenly. Like some areas will advance at a more rapid pace and those, their influence will like move off onto, onto similar, it will, they'll influence uh, nearby areas. And in the same way, it's not going to be, as you've described in your extensive writings, there's not going to be a, a single huge collapse, but a series of um, individual events, a bunch of them in different areas that will lead to different levels of technology. And I became interested in the idea of looking at how nomadic societies interact with agricultural ones, because we don't often think about, when we think of civilization, we often think of it as like a single event where agricultural sedentary societies surpassed hunter-gatherer nomadic societies in a sort of global, all over the world sense. And that's simply not true. And that if you look at if you look at it historically, nomadic societies have lived alongside agricultural ones for as long as agricultural societies have existed, and they've interacted with them in a number of ways. And in the same way, when you look at the ideas of an uneven collapse, that there will be it's not gonna not everything's just gonna suddenly drop back to nomadic societies. You're gonna have a mix of both societies, and we can look at the past interactions to try and take a look at what future interactions between nomadic and sedentary societies might look like. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to add? Because I know you've written about regional collapse. That's one of the, the things that is well praised about your writings. Yeah. So this idea is, you know, I take this from Leon Trotsky, the Russian Marxist. He kind of, he came from the idea it's, you know, capitalism specifically, which was the idea he was confronting. It's, you know, in, in Russia, it was this kind of backwards, you know, parts of the country, like even just in Russia, not the Russian Empire, but Russia, you had some cities that were highly urbanized. You know, you did begin to see the sort of development of what we understand as industrial capitalism and the growing, you know, social norms around that. But then you had the backwards peasantry, which made up a huge bulk of the population. And his idea of the permanent revolution, everything comes from that. Uh, that's less important, but basically, I get kind of tired dealing with these idea of collapsitarian types who are like, "Oh, peak oil and environmental destruction, everything's gone." It's well, no, not really, because if you think about, you know, some some societies are not truly self-sufficient, but better off, you know, whether it's a geographical or cultural uh, kind of hermeticism. I kind of think. North Korea, obviously, North Korea is quite uh, dependent on uh, Chinese trade and imports, as well as those of Russia. But they are in a different condition than the United States, who is extremely tied up in international affairs and the world trade economy, right? So mm -hmm. even if they're not fully independent, their relationship to the to technology and the world market are quite different. And so if uh, some type of collapse, whether it's economic, uh, ecological, cultural, you know, whatever it is, most of the time, these are all pretty much happening at the same time, these will affect p different communities at different rates. Uh, even within one country, for example, the United States, let's say some massive 
ecological devastation occurs. You could see this affecting, say, the south or the coasts differently than it would be like the Midwest as like the, uh, the breadbasket of the <clears> world. <throat> so you know what I mean? So looking at it from that perspective, like, like you basically summed up, a, a collapse is not one linear trend. Uh, that's universal for the world. Instead, it's quite it's quite unique to the conditions that these communities find themselves in. So, if you looked at the rise of, uh, say, industrialism in in England, um, it did not become it was actually quite unique. You know, it was one of the highest developed countries, and in, for the most part, still quite is one of the most developed countries in the world. While you stay, you know, you have the what you call the third world or the imperialized world, and there are reasons you know, intentional reasons they're not as developed, but even before then, mm-hmm. they they lacked certain material conditions and, and basic, bases that allowed for the development that England has or that soon after America had and, and things of that nature. So we can't, it's, why, why is it that we understand the world did not develop at the same pace? Why would we expect it to collapse at the same pace? Yeah. You, can even, you can even expect, like, certain countries in, you know, histo- in history, for Rome fell, Okay, what did that do to Mesoamerica, Africa? You know what I mean? Like, obviously, where Rome had connections, it affected it, but Rome collapsed. That was not a. For the rest of the world that did not have affairs with Rome, it literally did not matter. Yeah. So, like, I, in, in the modern times, it's a little different because, again, almost every country is tied up to the larger system in one way or another. So, there will be a massive ripple effects that will probably or most definitely affect. Um, the development and the collapse of these countries, but for the most part, you know, we have to expect it at different paces and manifest in different ways. Even if they are more hermetic, like I said earlier, North Korea, the DPRK would face a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a collapse quite differently than the United States or countries in Latin America, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I think you summed it up pretty well, and I'm kind yeah. of just rambling at this point, but basically that's the point. If those that are more interested, uh, I have stuff. I have an essay published in the first uh, Oak Journal uh, that's basically an expanded version of my original regional collapse essay for those that want to read more about it. And I intend to write about it more in the future and what that precedent establishes. But for the now, we're kind of, you know, focusing on the idea of like living on the fringe or on the edge of civilization or society. So Mm -hmm. if you want to maybe establish a bit more of your your idea on that. Well, uh, still going off the last topic, even within a same nation, there's you, there's wide different levels of development. Because, I mean, if you look at America, there's, like, some towns that don't have modern technology. And it's absolutely a class issue, too, of the vast majority of the population does not have access to certain technologies that certain, that people of higher classes do. Mm-hmm. And the idea that a country is developed is kind of a silly one. Because you're talking about, like, who in the country is developed. Because it's, it's definitely not everyone. Sure. Not everyone's benefiting from the same systems. Yeah, that's true. Some people, you know, they get a benefit while other people are, you know, it's based on their labor and their their pain and suffering. You know, we get the iPhones, but who's going to the mines and the factories to build and process the materials? And, you know, something I hate about the term developing country (laughs) is they say people say that economists as if there was ever any plans for the country to be developed, as if it's like a linear stage thing when our country is obviously want them to be in their current state for their mm-hmm. economic benefit yeah like i said there's a there's an intentional reason many countries have not developed and this is starting maybe not quite look as as exaggerated as it did in say like the early you know 1900s at the when imperialism was still becoming you know it was still like an issue that we did not fully understand lenin wrote about it 
and despite you know being a, a Marxist, I think there's a lot to learn from some of his works, specifically imperialism. Um, you know, these are intentional choices on behalf of the industrialized countries to oppress and take control of the economies of less industrialized uh, nations. Mm-hmm. Speaking of intentional choices, did you want to go into what you were saying, what you'd mentioned to me about uh, hunter-gatherers intentionally resisting? Yeah. So in 2015, and this has been something that has been talked about before, what was the relationship between hunter-gatherers and, and agricultural societies? And so I will preface this, that there is no good in generalizing because it varied so much. So, for example, some countries that came or some communities in Atolia, for example, the hunter-gatherers and the agriculturalists very much had deep connections to one another. We can tell that by burial sites, um, symbolic representation like jewelry, uh, things of that nature, weapons and tools. There's a lot of cultural diffusion, but North, Northern European hunter-gatherers, uh, and this is from Genetic Literacy Project, uh, they can see, they, for the most part, it really looks like a lot of Northern European hunter-gatherers resisted the agricultural spread. And they can tell this by the lack of evidence of cultural diffusion. So, for example, they say uh, that they may look like knit-knats in reference to bee types. Uh, but Dr. Rigard attests that they have profound cultural meaning. Body ornaments, she says, can express symbolic codes, ones that change as populations move, mix, and trade. Quote, we therefore consider personal ornaments as a reliable proxy for reconstructing uh, cultural diversity and change in past societies. And so the lack of evidence for that is quite telling that there was a, a refusal or an avoidance, despite the fact these communities were geographically close to one another. And some groups, like I said, they interbred and they have close, you know, close relationships. But there's also evidence of conflict. Agriculture is a colonial project, especially what you know uh, Daniel Quinn characterizes um, authoritarian agriculture, one that seeks not to exist within the ecosystem but to dominate it. That's where you get slash and burn tactics. Uh, Monocropping, for the most part, uh, is a very, very <clears throat> obvious example of that. Uh, food for trade as opposed to sustenance. And so you had conflict. The hunter-gatherers, you know, they need their animals to hunt and they need their their food, you know, the plants to eat. But when agricultural societies come in, they have to push these people away. Or So there's three methods. They just push them away through threat of violence or just kind of out-competing them. They assimilate them or they exterminate them because the ways of life are for the most part in contradiction. And so while hunter-gatherer societies may have coexisted for a time, these societies are almost always eventually assimilated and adopt agriculture themselves. Uh, for the, Like I said, they're in contradiction. The food that hunter-gatherers need is not found in agricultural societies, right? So like the mega, you know, if it's megafauna, not in the sense of like mammoths, but, you know, deer and things like that, um, or maybe more invasive species like wolves or, or boars, things, you know, things of that nature that aren't domesticated tend to be kind of seen as pests or threats to agricultural development by these hunter or by agriculturalist societies. But they are food, clothing, and other materials for hunter-gatherers. So they have to, the agriculturists will quite often wipe out the food sources, whether it's because they want to drive them out or because they need room. In the lack of pests, uh, you know, American colonialism did this to indigenous people with the buffalo, for example. Uh, while there is, a, you know, evidence of overhunting on the behalf of the indigenous people, the purposeful wiping out what is essentially kind of a genocide of buffalo to wipe out 
these nomadic and semi-nomadic hunter or indigenous people. And this is this is true for across across the United or across the world, really. That's one of the universal truths is the the, the antagonisms between hunter gatherers and uh, agriculturalists. And this is where one of the great lies of civilization and capitalism comes in, which is about raising people's standard of living and curing poverty. When in fact, these systems are what generate poverty in the first place. Because if you have a people who are able to um, get all of their needs fulfilled by their land base, and you come in and destroy their land base, and you force them to become integrated into your system, and then you claim that you've upraised them in some way when it's not true at all. Mm-hmm. And it was, I believe it was Engels in his, uh, the hit, the, I can't remember the, the work by the exact name, it's uh, the history of, let me look it up, history of the origin of the family private property in the state, excuse me. Uh, he talks about actually the rise of property in the form of agriculture and land is a direct course, directly corresponding with the idea of poverty. Because what? how is there poverty if there is no property in the sense of like ownership and class, you know? Mm-hmm. So, the you know, all these, and we can talk about medicine in the same sense. All of these solutions are quote, remedies for the issues that the system is already causing. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot to be said about that fact. Um, we'll talk less about, you know, medicine and all that, because that's not quite the topic. We've talked about that before on this podcast, and there's a lot to, to gain from, like, uh, Zerzan on this topic as well. <clears throat> but what we're kind of interested in is moving forward with, you know, the intensification of ecological sh- uh, deterioration, social unrest in the form of, you know, political or cultural uh, diffusion and things of that nature. You know, what can we do? We as an either an intentional anti-civilization movement or a general development of human society, what does that look like? And Emmanuel talked about something very interesting. It's, you know, we we're talking about the rising sea levels. Was that specifically what we were talking about? Was the Yeah, sea it was. And so when sea levels rise and these people have to move, eventually they will. And we see this more so in the less developed countries. Um, they have to move inland or to other countries or regions that are further away from, you know, the rising sea levels. But what, you know, they leave all these, this infrastructure behind these homes. If they're not demolished by the, the sea levels, you know, will people begin to exist in, in this kind of vacuum that's left yeah. behind? I mean, and these I, are perfectly, sorry. Oh, no, you're good. You're good. These are perfectly, we're talking about perfectly like livable, serviceable places, but it's by the market logic that they become worthless because of they're, they're not worth anything in the future because they can't be sold. They're not mm-hmm. worth anything because of that. Even though you could still live in them, there's like, there's no issue there. So in this way, you can defy the capitalist logic in a sense, carve out your own existence. Yeah. And I think, you know, like kind of talking about your uh Expanding on what you're talking about, you know, these are living places, and while they might be affected uh, in the long term by the rising sea levels, assuming they're not immediately put underwater, it's not going to be that way. It's that in the long term, you want to leave. Uh, for the reason, insofar as it would be hard to service these through trade and acquisition through, you know, the civilization's networks of, of the world economy. You know, these things become unreliable, but to people that are self-sufficient or largely self-sufficient, they're fine. They're usable, mm-hmm. you know? So, for example, the, there are 100 others that they live mainly on the banks of rivers and waterways. This is something that can easily be reproduced. 
similarly, not one-to-one, of course, but quite similarly. And, you know, if the water's polluted, you know, this might become a problem, but you have access to possibly um, aquatic animals like fish or anything of that nature. But also you might see a, a rejuvenation of, of soil because of the, the water. So there's also that pathway as well as that you start seeing these interesting conditions begin to arise that might foster new communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that looking at Syria is a great example for, um, it has a lot of useful information for trying to predict what could be going on in, at least in our case, America's future, the Western world. I mean, if you look at Syria and some of the different factors that precipitated their civil war, there was characterized by the loss of belief in the, in the predominant political system because the political system gave them certain promises which have rung hollow in a similar way that people are not infatuated, they're no longer infatuated with, the, with our current neoliberal system. They had rampant inequality, they had rising state violence, and critically, they had um, an increase in climate-related issues. At the time of their civil war, up to 75% of farms were failing to yield, and that's obviously a very devastating thing. And so if you look at the results of the Syrian civil war, you have different factions fighting each other. You have a government resort- resorting to more uh, brutal measures. And you have huge migrants, migrant crisis that results. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can take a look at that to um, analyze what could be happening to the United States. Because, I mean, everyone right now knows how poorly the United States is dealing with our current ongoing disaster. And if you look at, I mean, the the climate change, the climate deals or whatever that we're trying to aim for is like, reducing it to a 2%, I mean, um, a two degree increase by 2050, even though, I mean, who knows if that will work or not. It's very mm-hmm. likely that we could be going more degrees over that. But two degree increase in loan results in a 10% to 30% reduced food output. And mm-hmm. with increasing or even a maintained population level that becomes unsustainable, we're just not going to be bringing enough food in. And with these with our intensifying climate, you're going to have internal, um, you're going to have internal migrant crises, because all of the center of the country is going to become swamped in drought. It's going to be unlivable, and then you're going to have increasing hurricanes, and basically things aren't going to function anymore. And it's going to result in increased pressure on the state. The state will be, as you can see, the state's been uh, struggling to distribute vaccines or take any real measures with this, and this is what. What we're talking, what we're going through right now would be blown out of the water by a future climate crisis in terms of how impactful it would be. So the state will be less able to enforce its rule, which will result in opportunities for individuals to take things into their own hands, more or less. Mm -hmm. It'll be less reliance on these state mechanisms and looking instead at what individuals can do as groups on their own. Yeah. And it's interesting that, you know, we talked about earlier the social unrest and you mentioned Syria's with agriculture and almost kind of like this direct correlation between um, social unrest and in the environment. And not all social unrest has a direct link to the environment, but a lot of it does. And it's quite interesting because Rome, it's kind of understood that climate change and early, early, like, I mean, basically before Rome established itself in its in its ancient times was able to form because of new conditions that allowed for uh, optimum agricultural practice. But then later on, with, uh, uh, there was a cooling period that caused droughts that affected the Huns, which pushed the Huns uh, west 
which then pushed the Goths west, which made them invade Rome. And there's a huge correlation, not just that, but there's a correlation between climate and plagues and then the plague that affected Rome. You know, there's so there was a direct correlation between the, the rise and the fall of Rome with environmental change, climate change. Yeah, the impact of climate cannot be overstated. Civilization mm -hmm. itself has only been allowed to exist in this very brief window of life on Earth because of very specific climate conditions that could change just like the, the direction of the wind changes. I mean, if you mm -hmm. look at, you look at the, the Mayans, they were a great and powerful empire, but all it took was a drought, not even, like, not even warfare or internal strife, even though those did contribute, but it was a drought that was able to just wipe them off the map. Yeah, and I think it's you know it's interesting because we should never say it's only one issue, but it is quite common for climate change. If it's not the original issue, it begins to exacerbate uh, pre-existing antagonisms. Yeah, because of reliance on food. Uh, if there's no food, you can't really threaten people with like, "Hey, look, if you want food," because no one has food. You know what I mean? The the and it's interesting. So the more advanced, and there's some. Every primitive issue, know the the higher and higher the development of a society, whatever you know, by, by development we mean, of course, the the measurable development of industrialism and its control over its citizens is the more, um, how would you say, vulnerable it is or weaker in a sense it is because you know it's one thing if it's a bunch of small agricultural societies that are interconnected and at any point they can kind of break away from one another, but it's very low energy so to speak but then that more industrialized uh, region society culture whatever becomes if you begin to threaten just the smallest piece of that it's like jenga it all falls apart because it's all interconnected yeah i mean i don't have the statistics on hand to argue this for sure but i'm i have to imagine that the united states does not grow enough food in its own to serve its population and that if there was an international breakdown of economic relations, it would not bode very well for the population here. Hmm. I, I have a hard time believing that the United States grows enough food to feed its entire population of 350 million people. I'm actually pretty sure that it does. Or at least if that's true right now, it would not be true in the future. Yeah, because hmm. I think the United States has like has 40% or something like that of all like arable, farmable land. Oh, wow. Yeah, because uh, the Midwest is like the breadbasket, so to speak. And you, um, but you also have to consider which what what air, what um agricultural techniques are reliant on industrial level technology that would mm -hmm. not be available. No, you're right, and so that's the thing. That's even if we are how much a lot of it is because we've altered the environment for agriculture in addition to the the mechanization of of production, of food production. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So yeah. if, even if we're able to now, it all falls apart. It goes away that ability just doesn't exist anymore. Another thing to consider with what um, some level of collapse might look like in the United States is you have to consider what the animal populations, the impact would be on them. Mm -hmm. Because animal populations are already strained, obviously. And by animals, I mean non-human animals, such as deer. And if humans were forced to rely on them again, then they could go extinct, basically. Yeah, and I think there's something to be said about how, on the other hand, and I've, I've thought about this point before, but then my friend brings up, there's so many domesticated animals. Oh, yeah. Think about all the cows and chickens, and a lot of them will die because they're in cramped conditions, but admittedly, a lot of them will get out. 
and they can either fill in niches or they're, you know, killed and eaten. You know what I mean? I think it's in addition to the huge number of, of the biomass of domesticated animals, I think we'd be fine. Not to say that some, some animals definitely will go extinct, don't get me wrong, but I think it's not as bad as people predict it could be. Um, in addition to all of this, though, going back a little bit to this theory that Emmanuel puts forth, that we could possibly see the rise of kind of counter powers or kind of less industrialized powers, whatever the form it could be, it could take, it could be counterculture, something like, you know, the hippies, for example, moving into these places, it could be an intentional, uh, you know, anti-authoritarian movement, if that's like right-wing, left-wing, primitivist, whatever, or it could be a place of like retreat for certain groups. I, I my mind calls to, um, not hobos, so to speak. Um, but you know, there are some communities, uh, around the world and I tend to think of slab city as kind of one of those like mm. off grid kind of communities, so to speak. Um, so whatever, you know, if it's, if it's hippies, if it's homeless people of some, you know what, I, you see what I'm getting mm -hmm. at. Yeah. But in addition though, just cause they live on the edge doesn't mean they won't have interaction. Uh, yeah. it probably very very likely they would they would kind of probably be seen i'm not sure because we we can't predict i i would imagine they'd be kind of seen as like weirdos by everyone to be honest is like why would you do that you know but it's also possible people may not, <laughs> yeah people may not know that they're living here but we talked about before that hunter gatherers and uh nomadic or non even just industrialized and agricultural societies still mm -hmm. interact and they do well, and they inter they influence one another the main point of it i think is that as the system becomes more stressed and is less able to exercise its absolute power, we'll see more opportunities for individual and community liberation. A really lucid point that Derek Jensen had made in, about cities was that the nature of cities is that they have exhausted their, their food supply around them, and so they're forced to bring in food from elsewhere. And like you said, even if uh, agriculture can be maintained on some large scale, the systems for distribution aren't here. The systems mm -hmm. to distribute that food. If you're talking about not being able to have access to cars and trucks, which we're heavily reliant on, especially airplanes, that food's not getting around. And yeah. even though it's, it's tempting to fantasize about these scenarios and thinking about the opportunities for self-liberation, you also have to consider that the population that we have is simply not compatible with those conditions. No. And that... And any way you put it, there's going to be a huge, there's going to be a massive amount of death and suffering that would result. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that brings up the issue is the pain and suffering that comes about in the short term. And, and admittedly, there's a long term issue of it, but not in comparison to the death and suffering that is brought about by civilization in I'm the long even, term. I'm not that? even sure if it's worth considering, like, what's morally worth it when it's simply a fact that we must face. That's true. No, that's valid. I, mean, I think though a lot of people try to bring up, oh well, civilization. You know, you're, you're turning off the 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 you know unplugging people's life support. <laughs> that that's my favorite one. That so you're turning off the life support in the hospitals. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, but but civilization's history as as a colonial project that and dams indigenous I you know life ways and, and cultures it's like what's if you want to make a moral argument there's a strong moral argument against civilization yeah but not, either way not that we should appeal to morality because I don't find it all that useful for arguments to be honest of course but either way regardless of whether or not you think 
that what result will be a net positive or a net negative it's likely to happen mm-hmm. within the next hundred years and so that's why it's worth considering see i'm i'm even skeptical you know this might be a point of a disagreement i'm skeptical of that determinism i think civil civilization is very capable of course correcting there's been a few uh, uh, more than a few times that it has i think the further mechanization of agriculture in the form of vertical farming uh, will be its best way is a short-term course correction or if it you know if we get the green new deal you know i'm very much against the green new deal in these in these green technologies <laughs> these are short-term corrections it's basically it's someone that's walking without re- it's the last steps of someone who doesn't realize they're dead mm-hmm. it's your last you know they're it's struggling admittedly it is struggling i'm not optimistic and i'm not pessimistic about the situation of of collapse or whatever you want to Deter- yeah. civilizational deterioration if you'd rather use that term <laughs> um i do think it will not come about by intentional human means i don't think there's gonna be an anti-tech movement it's gonna be a lot of social unrest and ecological devastation mass migrations all things of that sort will contribute i tend, I tend to agree with you on that because of how what, what a scale we're talking about and how mm-hmm. small individuals have on their impact yeah and i don't but really the- on the other hand, I think this is important. You know, Marx has talked about this. Socialism is only capable in an international affair. And, you know, that's, that's brought about by capitalism and, and the intensification of this under imperialism. It brings up, it socializes these things. But instead of a class conflict, we're just talking a general, de- you know, deterioration of civilization. You could not have a global collapse like this as, as quote, easily foreseeable um, without the, the globalization of production mm-hmm. and civilization. You know what I mean? So we're yeah. almost kind of gifted to be in this time in the sense of it's more likely to happen now than it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago. And like I said, I agree with you that humans are not the main driving actors in this. But mm-hmm. what you had just mentioned uh, brought an idea, which was that, like you touched on earlier, that the increased technologi- technologization of any society increases its vulnerability and that if we became reliant on, if we were forced to become reliant on certain advanced farming techniques like hydroponics and vertical farming or whatever, and other sort of energy sources that are very advanced, those types of technologies are obviously very advanced and mm-hmm. complicated and could be vulnerable to being destroyed by individuals who have the motivation to do so. Yeah. And I, I think there, there will be people that intentionally respond to it, and people have responded to it. ELF, ALF, uh, Earth First, ARM, <clears throat> Kaczynski, uh, ITS, these groups, whether or not you agree with them, it does not matter your moral agreement with them. The Fed, there are people that act. And I think, you know, there is pressure put on the, there will be more pressure put on the system by these, by these actors and as groups or individuals, and especially and that- as the system becomes more and more vulnerable to, Small, small, small outages, small weaknesses, small attacks. Yeah, so I wouldn't necessarily put it out of the question that humans couldn't have a large and intentful effect on the future of civilization. That's valid. I'm just saying, I, I tend to think it's, it's less likely to be intentional, but I think the option is there. I I'm, just, I'm just more skeptical of it. Because yeah. I, like Ted talks about, or Sir Sand and all them, it's a lot of no, it's going to be a sizable minority, if anything. <clears throat> I, most people are not going to be like, yes, I would like to give up my standard of living for the good of the earth. <laughs> but there's some few that would. Yeah, and that's, you know, those people are out there and it's, you know, no matter their numbers, I think that movement or that sentiment is growing 
unfortunately also in the form of ecofascism, which mm-hmm. needs to be resisted as basically it, it thinks it's anti-civ, but it's quite actually a, a reproduction of civilization, which is quite ironic. Making sure not to conflate them with ecofascism, though. No, of course, no. I'm saying that unfortunately there is a current of these people that you know are considered or see themselves as ecofascist, but in reality they are not. They share they share rhetoric in some places, and in other places, of course, it's just blood and soil, you know, mm-hmm. lunacy. But in reality, you have to remember they're not anti-civilization. They reproduce the same norms and ideas civilization produces. Yeah, and so fuck you know obligatory just, fuck fascism it's just the the next flavor for populism to latch on to it's the oh. next enemy yeah it's it's you know it's another course civilization it's civilization is really trying out some new ideas to try and fix itself <laughs> <laughs> either it's you know socialism desperation desperate yeah it's you know it's civilization is trying to develop into course crap and it's kind of struggling because it's it has definitely fucked itself at this point. It's running out of options, I would say. And I know we're kind of anthropomorphizing uh, civilization. Obviously, this is not like civilization is not a person making these choices. It's a natural development. It has some sort of consistent logic, though, you can analyze. Of course. It makes sense to analyze in that sense. The Leviathan. Yeah, no, yeah absolutely. The, you know, the worship of death, which is Leviathan, and that it's always developing and, and consuming or reproducing itself shedding its skin and what have you there is a logic that is to be analyzed but it's not like it's a omni it's not an omnipotent deity or anything like that it is just the the conditions that it develops just like you said by the basic logic that is civilization which to me are expansionism uh, which is essentially to me synonymous colonialism unsustainable growth the elimination of elements that are antithetical to it. So that'd be wildlife, um, small communities, self-reliant communities, things of that nature. And so, for example, people can be like, oh, the, the Amish, so, yeah, but the Amish are inconsequential to civilization and they still interact with it deeply. So it's not like it's a community that's resisting it. It's just a counterculture that means basically fucking nothing to the trans team. But if there's anything else you wanted to add, I feel like we've talked quite a, quite a lot in the last about what 30 to 35 minutes i ran my timer a little late but we're somewhere in that in that range i think so if there's anything else you wanted to talk about uh we can continue that but i also think we've we've talked we've kind of discussed quite a bit and i think we've had quite a few good points if there's anything you wanted to add at the end here i think now might be a good time to uh shift the focus onto some previous interactions that i've been looking at of nomadic and um sedentary societies if you want. Okay, sure. Uh, one interesting uh, society that I looked at was the Xiongnu. Hope I'm not butchering that, which was in um, the geographical Chinese region. And it formed around 209 BC from a number of smaller tribal groups in response to uh, formation of the Han Empire. So is this a confederation of sorts? Yeah. Okay. But in this case, it's not merely group living on the sidelines, but actively battling and challenging the rule of the uh, existing sedentary society. They Hmm. were quite vicious, and they had an army of up to 300,000 horseback archers that were capable of mobilizing. Wow. Yep, and they they definitely adopted some of the Chinese practices from the sedentary society, such Mm -hmm. as they wore fancy silk clothes, they employed slave labor, and they they raided China for goods and even forced them to 
commit tribute to them. Hmm. But they were they were sheep herders. That was their economic base, which was obviously okay. supplemented by race raiding. And they hmm. they ruled for five hundred years. They were a powerful force. Yeah, it's like that's the thing is even in conflict, they tend to adopt social and economic values of another group. Just to that's just a natural and you know, cultural diffusion. Another group that I had looked at that seemed more positive, like a more positive influence to reproduce, were the Scythians, which were from 900 BC to 200 BC. And they lived in the, the Pontic Steppe, which is in Europe, and it stretches from the Danube River to the Ural River. And it's quite a large stretch. It's, uh, it's like comparable to the size of Western Europe. It's, on a, it's a pretty large scale that they occupied. And from what I read... Their, their society was con- was made up of voluntary associations of multiple different tribes. Hmm. And they utilized their entire adult population in warfare. Like the women and men fought alongside each other. And they were very aggressive, and, but they also supplemented their economy by working as mercenaries. Interesting. But the, the interesting point that I had gotten from the warlike nomads was the gender roles. Which is, I mean, obviously, if the women and men are fighting by side by side, that seems to suggest some level of quality. But on the other hand, if they, um, if it's the men that are fighting, then that results in the women staying home and taking over basically all the operations of their society until the men return. It was something interesting that I hadn't considered before. Yeah, both of those examples remind me one of them, the Chichimeca War, which was basically the part of the colonization effort on half of uh, Spain. Uh, basically about the same time that major Mesoamerican civilizations are being uh, bought out, destroyed, raided, what have you. Uh, There was this conflict in the 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 mid to late 1500s between um, Spain and it's, you know, some indigenous groups that they bought out and sided with against the Chichimeca Confederation, which were nomadic and semi-nomadic indigenous people. And for 40 years, they fought them off. Eventually, they through peace treaties and and, and and integration, they were eventually assimilated. But they put on basically guerrilla warfare in a very rough terrain that the Spanish conquistadors were not ready for. They just started getting fucked up by these indigenous uh, mm. warriors. And on the other half, on the other hand, there's the Sea Peoples that are theorized to have contributed to the Bronze Age, uh, the late Bronze Age collapse, which was 12, 1200 to 900 BCE. It was a, what we thought was might have been, they might have been influenced by famine or some other ecological factor that pushed them to migrate and raid uh, around Egypt, uh, Eastern Mediterranean, that sort of, you know, that, the Mediterranean area, essentially. And they might have contributed to what was essentially a, a massive dark age uh, in the late Bronze Age, that they were probably some type of pirate raiders that were influenced by their own environmental factors. We're not totally sure if they were real, but there are, they are a possible theory to what happened because all these civilizations kind of just randomly like mm. kind of just like for a bit, lack of a better word, like went backwards by how we define backwards. Right. In a, in, in a more developed concept. Well, that's definitely a good example of the environment shaping very physically the lives of people and the course of civilization. Of course. I think you have, um, talking about that, you know, you have the mound societies, um, 
the all uh the mayans and the Olmecs, possibly ancient egypt went through a huge drought we talked about rome already almost every major civilization a factor in their collapse or deterioration and balkanization was environmental degradation that tended to influence or perpetuate or make more acute the antagonisms that were pre-existing like we talked about already so it's the environmental deterioration is a massive you know like you said cannot be overstated the influence in the you know the the factor it plays in the both the development because it does assist in development in some ways but also the deconstruction of civilization and and, and certain national identities and cultures and yeah. so on i mean maybe it's because of the circles that i run in when i'm looking at news but the more i look at the the modern climate science the more dreary it's going it's looking if if mm-hmm. you want to consider it dreary yeah of, whatever you know whatever view you have of it <laughs> that the the climate catastrophe will be accelerating to a greater degree and faster than the media states i agree the media is comfortable with stating because in some ways i'm actually open to the idea that some of the the fears of the environment are actually bought out by like corporations wanting to sell fear whether that's in the market but it's funny because I think there's a lot more that's going on that they're ready for. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Just another opportunity for them to capitalize off of. Yeah, green tech being one of those. You know, of like oh look, you know, environment going bad. We need to. We need a new market to sell in solar panels. <laughs> and the communists are like, fucking yeah, eating that shit up. <laughs> yeah, solar panels aren't going to save us. I'm sorry. No, in fact, maybe they should go take a turn mining out rare earth metals in china yeah if you if you want them so bad go move to the fucking republic of the congo and get in that mine go go <laughs> get it yourself i sure was fucking in not doing it <laughs> is there anything else you wanted to talk about i'd also i looked at the modern mongolian nomads there's quite a lot of them there's over a million of the people in mongolia live a nomadic lifestyle even even till today yeah, like yeah, they're not hunter gatherers, but they're mad at often in the herders of some kind. Yeah, they're animal herders that move around by the seasons. Herding, they... those cultures are really interesting because there's so many of them. They're not often talked about in primitivist spaces. Mm-hmm. They they get all of th- everything everything they need from the animals. They use the skin and the bones for make different things. Their diet consists of the meat and the milk and the cheese, and yogurt, everything they can get from the animals. Yep, and they live a fairly low tech life compared mm-hmm. to most of us. The Kun and the Bushmen people have huge interactions with agriculture and civilization or industrial civilizations, whether it's for the study, uh, if it's for resources, because they're on like the front. They do not live in good places. Like they are on the outskirts of like sustainable living. And so unfortunately, they have to take like imports and assistance. And some of them go and live in civilization. You know, they're they themselves are kind of almost, for lack of a better term, being bought out or culturally influenced. To, to leave their their origins. Mm-hmm. Uh, and- even, even a more modern example would be like the movement of individual farmers in America to like cities. And this is universal across the whole world, moving from small towns and villages to, to urban cities. It's an interesting trend that the way that cities were idealized in the past and now it's more people idealize the rural life. Mm-hmm. It, it is interesting, isn't it? You know, it's like, oh, please stay on my farm. This has been in the generation for five, you know, in their family for five generations. And they're like, no, I'm going to go buy a house and live my life. And then their son is like, where do you, you know, where are you going? It's like, I'm going to go live in the rural life. I hate this dystopia. <laughs> well, I mean, at least for them, back in their day, they could be like a milk, get like five bedroom house. <laughs> Maybe they're a little bit more justified in that. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, for the last thing that I'd like to touch on is more on what people can do. And just like we were talking about right before we started recording about um, what was the term that you called it of like preparing like your region? Well, that was uh, the conservation. Yeah, well, basically the idea that I was thinking about was it's not just going to be like an overnight look at this civilization's fallen. Now you can go have a fun time being a nomad. You have to like, if, you, if that's something that you're seriously interested in, then you, you need to learn survival skills. And obviously this is something that lots of anti-civ people and dipshits who call themselves anti-civ but don't actually read anything do. But it would not hurt to, um, as far as actions to go, to prepare your community and local area for living without this uh, high-level interconnected technology. Yeah. And preparing yeah. for that sort of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. Is there, is that all you, do you think that's the last of it? Because this has actually been a, we've talked about quite a lot more than I anticipated, to be honest. We're about 50 minutes into this, I think. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have any other ideas other than that it would not hurt to try and build, build an alternate culture, something that can rise up and from use firearms, how to grow food locally, just so that you're not as reliant on each other. Yeah. But I think you, I think, like you said, you know, it's important to at least have the skills or at least the mind. To prepare for what can happen whether or not it does it's always good to be prepared there's no harm mm-hmm. in that and it's always nice to cultivate those intimate relationships as you learn these skills i don't think learning these skills in a vacuum or by yourself is is as meaningful as they are when you do it with other people because i think the histories they are they were social affairs the development of hand tools and things were quite social um so i think I'll, we can wrap it up here i'd say thank you for everyone to listening this far and emmanuel thank you for coming on Thanks for having me. I'm always glad to talk.